I'm Rebecca Lavoy, and this is You Can't Make This Up. You Can't Make This Up is the podcast where we uncover the true stories behind your favorite Netflix documentaries and films. On today's episode, we take a closer look at the Netflix documentary film, BitConned. We didn't know anything about this fucking business, but it didn't matter at all. It was too easy. We lied, we cheated, and made millions of dollars. And now I'm facing over 100 years. Today, we're talking to director Brian Storkel. At the height of the Bitcoin boom, Ray Trapani and his friends created a debit card for cryptocurrency. Even though the technology didn't work and the card was a scam, Centratech was making millions of dollars a day. But anyone looking at the operation would discover cut-and-paste business plans, fake executives, and glitchy technology. Once they tried to pass themselves off to the New York Times as legitimate, the whole thing fell apart. BitCon lets Trapani tell a story of fun, fame, and fraud as he awaits sentencing for the first high-profile case of the crypto era. Was it real? No. But did it work? Maybe. People can't give up on the promise. And, and part of that promise is just the simple one that you can get rich quickly. And I'm joined by director Brian Storkel. Brian, welcome to You Can't Make This Up. Hey, thanks for having me. So this story is about the rise and fall of a cryptocurrency-based product from a company called Centratech, and it's mostly told from the perspective of Ray Trapani. So we hear from the top that he was caught in a crypto scam and at that moment was awaiting sentencing for his role in that scam. Why did Ray agree to talk with you? You know, uh, that's a really good question. And uh, I should ask him that again now that we're, <laughs> that we're done with this. Some people just like to talk, I think. And he had a great story. And really wanted to share it. I think part of it without giving too much away, but he's, you know, gone through due process of, you know, everything having to deal with this case and is kind of able to talk about it more now. Yeah. So Ray says in the beginning that growing up, he always wanted to be a criminal. And at first I thought he was being, you know, maybe a little self-reflective, a little bit of nuance there, but he literally says, I always wanted to be a criminal. And I didn't miss it, right? Like, he wasn't being nuanced. He kind of always wanted to be a criminal. No, yeah, we asked him that multiple times. I mean, that's a very, I haven't heard anyone else say that. Ever since I was a kid, I've always wanted to be a criminal. It was never like, I'm going to be a doctor or I'm going to be a scientist. I, you know, if I could have put it in my yearbook, I would have put, I want to be a criminal. <laughs> and I think it had to do with, you know, being around his grandpa and the image that his grandfather portrayed was something he looked up to, which was, somewhat criminal. It's questionable as to say whether it was, you know, definitively criminal, but the image he saw was very much Scarface or, you know, some, you know, mobster type grandfather. The imagery of your interviews with Ray is really interesting and great, the scenes that he's in. And throughout the film, you cut back and forth to him getting fitted for this custom suit. And the tailor keeps asking him questions about his life also. And they're getting good answers, the people in the room with him, you know, helping him fit the suit. So did you plan that to have the tailors ask him questions or were they just good conversationalists because of the work that they do with men like Ray? Yeah, that was a beautiful little accident, honestly. Like we did one main interview with Ray 
And then we took him back to a bunch of locations where we were going to do little mini interviews. And this was this was kind of one of those. I was going to, after he got the suit, try you know, fitted, we were going to have him stand there and answer a couple of questions. But we kind of framed up the camera so that he was looking into the mirror and the tailors were still working on him. And they asked maybe one question. And I was just like, keep going, keep going. Ask him some more, ask him some more. And how much did you make in total? Uh, on paper, 32 million. But like in reality, we made like a few hundred million. That's good. Yeah, <laughs> two pennies. Would you do it again? Uh, I always go back to this point of like, if I knew it 100% that I was gonna make $30 million doing something illegal, would I do it or would I not? Because they were genuinely interested in his story. And I think, you know, coming from that place of curiosity, it's so much more fascinating and so much, you know, it's not staged in the in the sense that even a sit down formal interview would be with a director. So mm. they they crushed it and we just let him keep going. We we're like, yeah, this is gold. Keep going. Keep going. So we hear his friend Andrew talk about this prescription drug ring they ran. And when the cops busted them, Ray ratted out Andrew and his friends and walked away free and clear. So my question is, did Ray get the tattoo that says loyalty before or after that? I believe that was before, but um, I think Ray would also dispute as to whether he ratted them out. So he, um, you know, there's different stories, two sides to that, I think, but he definitely has had that tattoo for quite some time. And I think what's interesting is there's another person in the film, um, one of the other Centra founders uh, who also has a similar loyalty tattoo that's a little bit smaller, but similar one. Yeah. And you have that great shot of him lifting weights and you've got a really great shot of that loyalty tattoo. Was that on purpose? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. We needed to see him with his shirt off. I mean, this is, uh, you know, this, it's that kind of movie. So there is this lingering question throughout the film about Ray's grandfather and his origin story. And it's implied that he may have been connected in some way to the mob. Maybe it's one of those things that no one seems to really want to talk about, but they kind of want you to think about or you want us to think about and I'm just curious like was that just bluster is that just like family lore what do you think I you know I think there's some truth to it but how much I'm not sure I mean it's great talking to his grandma Pat like she's one of my favorite parts of the film and just the way she kind of dismisses it is like ah no he wasn't in the mafia you know he had something to do with the elevator business I mean that it just leaves so many questions um, and they definitely you know both Ray's mom, who was his grandmother's daughter, obviously, she said she saw money laying around, you know, suitcases full of money. Um, there was definitely times where Ray found money, like, you know, large amounts under the mattress and things. And, you know, it's it's that kind of I think anytime you're dealing with that amount of cash, that was one of the big red flags. But then also just his grandfather, Pop, presented this image that was very much out of a movie. You know, the yeah. stories that people tell about him make it feel like he was one of those guys from Goodfellas. Right. And the fact that his uh, wife can't actually say what his actual job was, but something to do with mm. the elevator business doesn't help dispel that legend, right? Right, right. There is a tension in Ray's life between wanting to run some sort of criminal enterprise and get rich and wanting to be legitimate to make his family proud. And that's where this luxury rental car business comes into play. Is there any chance that Ray and Sorby could have made that work instead of pivoting to crypto, maybe if they had just curbed their personal spending a little bit? I think possibly. But you've got, yeah, you've got a couple of young guys in Miami 
with a lot of money and exotic cars and it's not going to end well. I don't think for, for guys in their 20s in that situation that too many people would be able to have much longevity with that kind of business. So for reasons that we learn later on, we don't get to hear much from Sorby himself in BitCon. I'm curious, Brian, what are your impressions of, of Sorby? Yeah, I, I, all I know is what I've read in the media and talked to, you know, I've talked to his family. I've talked to people that knew him, that used to date him, that are, you know, coupled with him now. I've talked to, you know, all sorts of people that have spent a lot of time with him. But one of the frustrations is I never got to talk to him. Um, and I worked for a long time, over a year, to try to get an interview with him for the film. I talked with his lawyers as well. I made trips to Miami and, you know, just really tried to get him on board. And I think because he had some ongoing appeals, um, he wasn't able to speak. So we we kept we kept trying up until the end. And it was always like we'd get a reply from one of his lawyers saying, OK, he's ready to talk now. And then something would go wrong and and we wouldn't be able to get it. And even after I turned in the film, I got a message from, you know, his brother in law basically saying, hey, he's ready to talk now. He's ready to be interviewed. Is it too late? I was like, yeah, it's it's too late. It's, <laughs> it, unfortunately, it's too late. Yes, we're we're airing it in, you know, in a month. Hmm. I wish I could say more about him and really understand him more, but not having a personal relationship with him or conversations with him. I don't, I, I can't really tell what, you know, what's really going on inside of his head. Yeah, I wish, you know, I could understand him a little more too, because one of the things that I couldn't work out is why Ray, you know, wanted to continue to work with him. I mean, the business breakup after that the car business breakup wasn't necessarily a great breakup, right? Like he accused Sorby of embezzling money from that business. And I couldn't quite wrap my head around why he'd want to work with Sorby again. So Sorby must have something like to him that's an, a, a, has an appeal, right? Yeah, I, I, I guess so. I mean, they definitely saw the dollar signs and they created something that was unique at the time. Uh, well, maybe unique is the wrong word. There were other, you know, things like this out there at the time. But they somehow were able to get theirs off the ground. And I think Ray saw that idea and saw the dollar signs and and just, uh, you know, went with it in spite of, you know, what complications he may already have had with that relationship with Sorby. They continued in this business. So they did identify a legitimate pain point in the crypto market, which was with that crypto at the at that point, you could be rich on paper, but it was hard to access your actual money. So. Explain some more what the product they were selling actually was. Were they creating a cryptocurrency or just creating this way to access your cryptocurrency? Yeah, they had their own coins. So they did an ICO and they raised funds through that. Um, they had Centra tokens that they were they were selling. Um, and then they also had the debit card, which was a way to spend your crypto. And you could spend not only Centra coins, but you could spend all ver different versions of cryptocurrency on your card in real time. And you would work kind of like a debit card where it would come out of an account and transfer. It would convert from whatever cryptocurrency to U.S. dollar and spend right at the grocery store. There were several companies doing it at the time, and they were in the process of making this card uh, making it or faking it or whatever you want to say. Like there's the the question of whether it's fake or not is tricky because some versions of a prototype of this card were working. Were there lies and fraud along the way? Yes. But I do believe that they were actively working towards some sort of fully functioning card and company, even though there was fraud and, and lies along the way. 
not just fraud and lies. Ray actually um, confessed a crime to you on camera that when he had access to somebody's wallet, he just stole the money out of that guy's wallet. Yeah. That was shocking yeah. to me that like he's just willing to just tell you on camera, hey, yeah, yeah why, this guy accidentally gave me his passcode. So I just, you know, I saw the money there and I just took it. This is what I found fascinating about Ray is that he was so honest, even about the most horrible things. Uh, most people you work with, criminals and such, are dodging around the truth and trying to, you know, backpedaling over their words and trying to, you know, not tell you everything. But Ray, I really believe he was, you know, let's say 95% honest with me. <laughs> like he he told me stuff that I would look at him and look at the camera guy next to me and say, like, does he know this camera's rolling? Like we're, <laughs> he knows he's saying this on record, right? Um, Cause the things he would say would be so ridiculous. And I mean, I think part of that is his personality. I think another part of it is that when he cooperated with the, with the government, he had to tell them everything he did wrong. And once he told them those things, they couldn't prosecute him for him in the future. So I think things like that, he probably told to them if he didn't, he could potentially be prosecuted for it. But the way it was explained to me was that after he had shared all of those things, he could not, not be charged with them anymore, which made him able to be a bit more honest with us with everything. Yeah, it was pretty incredible. Can you remind me how Centra convinced the world about the members of its C-suite, like the, the veracity of their credentials and, you know, existence? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of ways, but their their fake staff was one of them. You know, that was their CEO was incredible. When we started working on this film and I heard about Michael Edwards, uh, the fake CEO, that has to be a major plot point. And I really want audiences to believe that Michael Edwards is real and then at some time flip it on them and and uh, realize that he's not. But the the fact that they had you know, staff that weren't even real people that supposedly worked at, you know, Wells Fargo and like Bank of America and things and had this huge resume was incredible. And that led people, I think, to, you know, how much did they trust in them more because they had this this fake CEO? I'm not sure, but it was a factor when people were going to invest in a company and they see this guy, it leads them to believe that there's someone they can trust there. So we went after, you know, we were we knew we had to find the real Michael Edwards. And so that was like a big part of upfront. I said, if I could land him an interview with him. That would be such a fun twist in the film. I'm Michael Edwards, founder and CEO of Centratech. Is that uh, who you really are? No, that's not who I really am. I'm Dr. Andrew Haleko. I'm a professor at the University of Manitoba. I was stoked when he agreed to do it. Were you surprised by how junior varsity some of this scam actually was? Like, you know, I don't know how blockchain works, but I know how Google reverse image works. I know that, you know, just saying you went to Harvard on your LinkedIn does not erase your Instagram history that shows you having owned a car dealership and not having gone to Harvard. I mean, it's JV, right? It is. And it, but what's even more fascinating is that people bought into it. So to me, the fact that they were getting away with these things that seemed so amateur was incredible to me. I think that, you know, if they were just doing them and people weren't buying into them, that's one thing. But the fact that they kept kind of failing upwards, they would do something stupid and then raise more money. I mean, you get to the point in the film where you're like, certainly they're going down. And then that Korean company reaches out with more money. 
And I think that is what's incredible and, and also is kind of a sign of what was happening at the time with these types of things. In 2017, it was just the Wild West of, of cryptocurrencies. And you had all sorts of people starting scammy companies and, and you know, milking people out of their money. And people weren't asking questions. They were just they could do no wrong. And they just assumed that their money would just go up, go up, go up, you know, and there was there was not there was no one keeping anyone in check. And I think there was probably a lot worse scams that were going on at, at, at the time that people didn't get in trouble for. Yeah, I mean, it is worth noting that this was before these really high profile cases like OneCoin and Quadriga CX or FTX. And few people knew a lot about crypto, let alone that most of these outfits were scammy, right? Like consumers just were not aware of that at that time. Absolutely. I mean, they, you know, some people had made some money in Ethereum or and a lot of people were putting that into other coins. But yeah, there wasn't general knowledge of what types of people were in this industry and, and how scammy they were. I think Nathaniel Popper, who wrote a great article for the New York Times um, about Centrotech, he was looking at the time, he, he had kind of become the de facto reporter at the Times for anything crypto. And he knew there was all sorts of scams going on and was trying to find something to write about. But there was too many stories. It's like, where do you even start? These things are everywhere. And somehow he stumbled across Centra. He looked at them and said, they have a little bit of everything. They've got the celebrities. They've got the fake you know, CEOs. They've got all sorts of things. They raised a good amount of money. And they kind of summed up everything that was wrong in the crypto world at that time. In a sense, Centra was the story of crypto itself, which is an endeavor that has something real underneath it, but keeps failing and keeps running into problems. And yet people keep coming back to it. There's something so alluring there. Yeah, I think the SEC went on to prosecute. This did become the first case that the SEC prosecuted in the cryptocurrency space. Uh, and I think that was... Also because of this New York Times article and because they had been given some light there. What I thought was interesting about Nathaniel Popper was he was talking about how, you know, belittled his beat was at the New York Times at the time. Can you talk about how important he was to your film, like having him in your film? Yeah, he's incredible because I think you you want somebody that's going to kind of help take down the the bad guy, if you will. I don't like to say that there's good or bad guys in, in films, but that would be his role here. The the good guy investigating and, and trying to solve the crime. He had done an, you know, an incredible amount of research. You know, we reached out to him fairly early on and we were able to do an interview with him and get a lot of information from him that was helpful in all of our other interviews after that and in crafting the film. And yeah, he was a he was a huge help. So it seems like no one was more surprised than Nathaniel that Sorby continued to talk to him when it was clear this whole thing was a house of cards, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think he he says that in the film, like he very much thought at some point they would shut up, but they just kept answering his calls. The first thing is Visa has said nobody has applied to issue a central card. I mean, I, I know I know details about that. I mean, you know, I mean, but uh, I mean, I, I can't give you direct answers on that. We have calls with Ray in the film. He talked with Ray, you know, a, a decent amount, but he talked with with Sorby much more. And those conversations, you know, aren't in the film, but they're even more fascinating. And just the, you know, just the cover ups as they start getting down the road and he's asking him more and more questions. He kind of 
just catches them over and over again. And much like the interview they did with Cliff High, which in the film seems to go incredibly wrong, after that interview with Cliff High, they raised even more money. Like things kept going even better because of that attention. It's funny to see that even with the warning signs that people were still buying into these things. It's interesting because agreeing to do a profile with the New York Times seems like a terrible idea if you're knowingly running a scam, right? So my question is, did they sort of think they were doing something legit at that point? Or did they just not understand like what journalism is and they thought they were just going to be able to fleece this New York Times reporter? That was the big question I had about it. Yeah. I think if you ask Ray, he would say, no, we knew it was a scam the whole time. If you ask Robert Farkas, um, who is one of the three co-founders, he would say, yes, we were legitimate. I believe it and I still believe in it today. I, I, it might be mixed, but either way, they they all thought for whatever reason that this was a great idea to do a profile in the New York Times. And they were excited about it. I mean, you see the pictures. They did a huge photo shoot in these in these suits with the New York Times photographer. Um, and they you know, were all thrilled that they were going to get this press because it meant good things for their, you know, for their company. And and in some cases, it might have been. I mean, most of the, you know, attention they were getting, even when it was negative, was again, turning around into something where they raised more money. So there's a chance that, you know, this New York Times thing, even if it was negative, could have been good for them if the SEC hadn't read that article and came after them. Yeah. Unfortunately, people at the SEC do tend to read the New York Times. Um, yes. <laughs> it was interesting to me, you know, Nathaniel decided to send the photographer there quickly before they figure me out that I'm a real journalist, which apparently right. they weren't going to do anyway. But there were actual employees there. And I found myself wondering, did they really hire employees who went to the office thinking that this was a legit non-scammy company? Like, did they have infrastructure employees like payroll yeah, people? Like, I'm pretty stuff sure. Like that? Yeah. Yeah, my my guess is that most of the people there, you know, assumed they were working for a legitimate company huh. um, and it was a normal job. Yeah, I don't think there were too many people there that went to work thinking we're, we're scamming people. Right. So you mentioned Cliff High a minute ago. It seems like Centra made a lot of money also thanks to a typo that <laughs> Cliff High made. Yeah. Um, can you just remind us who Cliff High is and what was that mistake that he made in his blog? He's a, a, a crypto guru blogger. And he found this this company, you know, using these web bots, as we call them. Uh, he found a company called Centra, and it was the wrong Centra. It was some sort of bank that he had that he had uh, thought that this bank was partnering uh, in a crypto venture, and that was something he was thrilled about. And he wrote a long report about. And turns out his web bot had discovered the wrong Centra. So he quickly retracted that, but it was kind of too late because that was the, you know, that was the start of them raising $35 million was uh, because of this mistake and because of his endorsement, because he was that powerful in that, in that world. It also seems like maybe they didn't do a great name search when they named their scammy company. <laughs> it's like some brand confusion. That would be a good scam would to be to get your company to sound like anything you can and copy the logos too. So, <laughs> well, or yeah. copy a whole website and then just find exactly. and replace, right? <laughs> exactly. So Cliff tries to atone by exposing Centra for the benefit of the crypto community and, and Sorby 
decides to do an interview with Cliff. The first thing Sorby says in that call is, We are 100% not a scam. Starting off by saying this is not a scam is the most bizarre thing in the world. No one ever says that unless it's actually a scam. Hey, that's that's fine. That's fine. But your statements, your statements don't mean anything. You stating you're not a scam in no way proves you're not a scam. He doesn't do himself any favors in that interview, right? No, no, it does not go well. It's painful to watch, especially in its entirety. It's a very painful interview. So the heat's rising now and Ray and Sorby and Robert hire a lawyer to deal with the legal threat. So talk about this guy. (laughs) Who is Eric Pope? Oh, Eric Pope is an incredible lawyer based out of New York. Huge resume. (laughs) He's got a great website. Uh, Eric Pope is one of my favorite things about this because they really, really believed that Eric Pope was helping them and that he was a very skilled and credentialed lawyer. Um, And they sent all of their stuff to Eric Pope. When they got in trouble with the SEC, they sent it to him. Um, When they had other questions, they went to him. He helped them with all of their paperwork. And they did not find out until much later that he was a college kid pretending to be a lawyer. He was like this young kid, (laughs) fucking maniac. And and my partner thought it was a legit lawyer the whole time he was talking to him. And he basically, like, scammed a company that was already scamming us, which was double scam. He was scamming the scammer, huh? Yeah, crazy. He did get busted for that. I think he only made... I don't have it in front of me. It's somewhere around $40,000 being a fake lawyer for three years. And he also had a partner. So it wasn't, it wasn't incredibly lucrative for him, but because of Centra and I think the attention it got, I did hear that the Centra executives cooperated with the government to help put Eric Pope away. Right. Cause they all have loyalty tattoos, right? So yes, exactly. That? Exactly. But <laughs> it's one of my favorite parts, especially when he's talking to the, to the suit guys and they're so shocked at, you know, basically like they got scammed by us. The scammer got scammed by another scam. It's, it's, it's incredible. It's karma. Well, that's the thing. Is it karma or are they somehow, and this is what I found myself wondering, are they somehow more susceptible to somebody like Eric Pope because this is how they operate? It's almost like they are scam blind. That's, that's what I found myself wondering. Maybe. I mean, they got tricked by their own scam. I mean, especially the website, just believing something off a website is pretty <laughs> funny. I mean, I just, I find it really entertaining. And I think that he, the fact that this kid, you know, fooled them, I don't know. I, I don't know if it's karma or what, but I just, it's a big laugh for me. I, I love it. Like, it's it's so great. Yeah. I think the key to being a fake lawyer is to go into a field of fake law where other people don't know anything about what it is you're doing. There you go. Is, <laughs> yeah. So the fact that they didn't know what they were actually doing probably really helped this kid out a lot. Exactly. You just got to be confident and, you know, and that's it. <laughs> it that's all it takes. Big words and confidence. <laughs> Eventually, they do need real lawyers, though, because the FBI finally does, uh, you know, go into Centra. When you began interviewing Ray, he hadn't yet been sentenced. The guy with the loyalty tattoo again cooperates with authorities to convict his co-defendants. And instead of getting decades in prison, he was sentenced to time served and released. No time, bitch. (laughs) Well, she loved you. Comparing it to Sorby's is like night and day. (laughs) Facing 175 years. Did you think that was what was going to happen? Honestly, like, no, not at first. When we started this, um, his sentencing was probably a few weeks or a month in advance. And we were rushing to go film with Ray before he got locked up. We were worried that 
if he went to prison, then there's, you know, we're trying to make this movie that's going to be a little difficult. So the sentencing kept getting pushed over a year, I think. I mean, we waited for quite a while for the sentencing. Um, And as we got farther down the road and talked to more lawyers and people involved in in the story, I think I started to think that he probably would would get off. But there was still a question, even on that day, of whether, you know, how strict the penalty would be. I mean, there was definitely on paper a chance that he could get 100 years or something. But I think just knowing, you know, talking to the other lawyers in the case, it seemed like he was probably going to get off with very little time, maybe a year at the most. And then ultimately, as you see in the film, he gets gets no time. Hmm. The true measure of whether or not that was a fair outcome perhaps came from investor Jacob Rensel. How did it feel to be the one to deliver the news to Jacob that Ray got time served for stealing his money? Yeah, I uh, I mean, it felt kind of bad because <laughs> obviously Jacob would like to see him spend some time in prison. That upsets me. That upsets me. Okay, well, I'm going to... Do you think he's really changed? I hope so, but that doesn't absolve him from what he's done in his past. It was also a good moment that we could capture on camera, so I'm glad he hadn't heard that news anywhere else yet. But yeah, it is it is shocking at the surface. I think Paul Pertuzzi, who is Robert Farkas's lawyer, talks about it um, and talked about it more than is in the film, but that's just the way the government works in New York is if you cooperate, you get no time. Personally... I think there should be some middle ground. Mm. I mean, give some sort of benefit for cooperating, but don't let them get off completely either. Yeah. But it seems like it's all or nothing, according to according to him. Robert Farkas's attorney might be biased, but he said of the three principal players that Ray was the most likely to reoffend, And he said it in a pretty colorful way. It's shocking to me. With his record and as much of a scumbag as he admits he is, that he winds up with literally the lowest sentence in this case. Do you agree this might be the case? I don't have a comment on that. I would say he says that. I'd say Samson Enzer, the, you know, the prosecutor, he says Sam is, you know, the one that would be most likely to to reoffend and sees that because of his criminal habits basically is what he would say is that over the over the years if you look at these things, I think they both agree that Robert Farkas would be the least likely to mm. reoffend and kind of was just caught up in all this, you know, wrong place, wrong time and bought into it because I think he believed in the company. He took a and, job, right? He just took a job yeah, that he was exactly, offering. exactly. And I don't know how much he knew of things that were illegal that were going on or not, but he I, he did believe in it. And I think probably I feel the most sorry for him because he wasn't the one uh, leading the charge, but still got roped into all of this. Yeah, although he never asked the question, why am I being made CFO of a company when I have True. no experience? I mean, that's exciting, though. Yeah, you get you get that. I mean, I'm down. What's, I'm, <laughs> what's the salary? Let's go. You make the choice to include the several times that you asked Ray and his family about his current finances, including buying a house in particular, and whether he still maybe has any of this stolen money. And you included their somewhat evasive and somewhat differing answers. 
Can you talk about your decision to include these conversations in the film? Yes. I I think as a filmmaker, I want to know what the viewer is asking. And I think everybody's going to be asking, where's the money? Like, does he still have money? And I asked him multiple times throughout this production. And there always was a bit of a playfulness or a denial. It wasn't the same honesty that I had in other conversations with him. You're buying a house. Yeah. How you buying a house? Money. Yeah. That's how it goes. Yeah. How do you have money to pay for the house? How's he buying a house? Ray? Ask him. I don't know. So those moments at the end of the film are a little more raw than other moments and I think feel a little more real, but they they were important for me to include because I'd been asking that question the whole time and I don't I don't have an answer, but I think that there's there's something there. Like whether he has $200 or $2 million, there's potential that there's some some additional money is my guess. Yeah. Now, you produced or directed some great documentaries like The Legend of Cocaine Island and The Pez Outlaw. And what those have in common are quirky people who get into trouble because they dream really big and maybe a little naive of the law. But Ray says from the beginning that he always wanted to be a criminal. He knew the system and that he was hurting people. And now he's you know, buying houses and making loans to financially disadvantaged people at 50% interest. He says this is going to be his new business venture. They say when people show you who they are, believe them. So what am I supposed to believe about who Ray Trapani is? I think you can believe what he tells you. I think, <laughs> I think you shouldn't trust him as far as I would never give him money or enter a business venture with him. I think Ray's probably loyal to the closest people around him, but then he has other priorities when it comes to everything else, mainly money. I think what you believe about Ray, I Ray is complicated. Like he's, he's fascinating. He's so, I've never met someone who was so willing to talk about their dark side in such an open way. There's so much stuff that didn't make it in the film. There's so many adventures and uh, things that, you know, I would never want my kids to hear but <laughs> is there anything you can tell us about that while we're talking i mean ray what can i tell you about what can i tell you about <laughs> um he had so many stories though and it just it just uh i mean one of the first things ray told me was his favorite movie is wolf of wall street and he really looks up to and respects jordan belfort he said when he went into centra he looked at jordan belfort and said i want to model my company after him. Like, I think that says a lot about someone. I don't know. There's probably a deeper dive that a therapist could do, but that to me says everything. Yeah. Well, we see that he's fallen in love, gotten married, now has a baby. Is he an open book with his wife, his now wife too? And and does it seem like he's an open book with her and, and in those close relationships? I mean, he's he's an open book with his wife after she sees this movie, I guess. Um, <laughs> I think, you know, I think she's aware of all of this. I mean, she knew when she started dating him, she knew the basic details. He was wearing an ankle bracelet when she met him and had a curfew. So they would have to rush home in time back to his grandmother's house every night by 12 or something and like barely make curfew. Um, but I think he's open with them. I mean, how much will he tell his kids? They're young. I'm not I'm not sure, but it's something that I don't feel like anyone around him 
hasn't heard these stories. His best friend, Johnny, who's in the movie, is like probably, you know, loves him and hates him. Like he knows how messed up he is in so many ways. And somehow they're still best friends. That says a lot. And I find I find Ray to be frustratingly uh, likable uh, because you don't want to like him. And I think you get to the end of the film, too. And that is what's interesting is he's complicated in that way. Like you're saying, this guy is horrible. He's doing horrible things. But I kind of like him. Like, why? And I think that hopefully points the finger back at the audience and makes them ask a few questions, too. Well, along those lines, Ray's mom did say that if you make Ray look like a scumbag, you're going to be in big trouble. I said it from the very beginning. I mean, if you make him look like a scumbag, I'm really going to be pissed. Because I, I swear to God, you'll be in big trouble. I'm not kidding. So I have to ask... Are you looking over your shoulder a little bit for Ray's mom right now? Well, the big question is, did, does Ray look like a scumbag? Do you think <laughs> Ray looks like a scumbag? I don't know. I kind of feel like you do. Like, I mean, does Ray think Ray looks like a scumbag? That'll be the question, too. He hasn't <laughs> seen the movie yet. So by the time this comes out, he will. But I'm guessing that Ray's going to like it and that hopefully he can calm his mom down a little and that I won't have to look over my shoulder. Um, I like his mom. I think I've had meals with her. I've hung out with her. Like, she's lovely. It's tough if your son is a convicted felon and it has controversy in his life. Of course you want to stick up for your kid. Like, but you also know just like his best friend that like, yeah, you love him and you hate him. Like, you, there's, there, it's a mixed bag. Well, Brian Storkel, the film is BitCon. It's super interesting and Honestly, a whole lot of fun to watch. Thank you so much for coming on. You can't make this up to talk to me about it. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks so much again to Brian Storkel. For more of my takes, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we break down the latest in true crime documentaries, TV, podcasts, and pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please rate and review this show and share it with your friends. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. And make sure to follow the show to stay tuned for all new episodes. Our music is by Kelly Mack at Netflix Music Lab. You Can't Make This Up as a production of Netflix. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening. 